0: Welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky, episode 5. Uh, not much else going on around here, even though Halloween was just last night. It was definitely going to be one of the more uh, lower end and uneventful uh, ones that we've had in Jesus in the past couple of decades. And now that we're hitting November, unfortunately, we're going to be getting one less hour of daylight leading into uh, the, lo- uh, the later parts of the year. So. With daylight saving time taking another hour away from us and another hour of light that's not going to be coming back until the new year, um, in terms of news and anime related, there wasn't necessarily much going out through the week of October twenty-six. I would say one of the bigger ones to come through was that after Netflix uh, announcing several partnerships with various anime studios last week, this week they were able to host a po- uh, press conference online showing their uh, recent acquisitions and new uh, projects that are going to be having a lineup arriving in 2021. So including that is a, uh, is a relatively popular gag manga by the name of Way of the House Husband, and then a handful of other series that are going to be coming out with uh, related works, some original and some spin-offs, and some heading through with a uh, majority of the demographic leading to the product that already has an audience, such as Godzilla's Singular Point, Pacific Rim Black, a Resident Evil bid, and then a new season of Baki after Netflix was able to get uh, one of the previous series of the long running <laughs> macho muscle that wins the day every single time somehow uh so all of those are going to be getting adaptations along with a handful of others all coming in 2021 um in terms of other related news i mean the demon slayer film continues to break records as it was the fastest japanese film to break the 100 million usd box office barrier at only 10 days, and sitting now at uh, two weeks into its runtime, it has now hit $110 and it's only going to continue to rise after that, being essentially one of the only films that uh, anybody is able to go out and see in theaters. I'm going to debate jumping into that once it finally gets a North American distribution and maybe decide to don a mask and go out and try to go through. didn't necessarily feel like... Uh, demon slayer did anything amazing or spectacular besides um, episode 19 garnering uh twitter priority and fame essentially getting everybody to take a mention every single time that it was able to get into the public consciousness and i would definitely say that episode 19 did that but everything else outside of that bit it was just shonen stuff doing shonen traits eh, in a pretty satisfying manner but that isn't necessarily enough even though Euphoric is able to transcend the majority of the medium and legitimately get other properties that it decides to work on into the limelight, whether they like it or not. Um, in terms of uh, a project that's re- that I'm relating to that actually has me quite excited, um, the Deno Coil uh, director and writer is now unveiled his new anime studio with an early 2022 debut and teaser for his new uh, for his new anime. And so this is um, extraterrestrial boys and girls uh, housed by Studio Production Plus H, which was established specifically to make this show after production issues uh, started running awry in the early uh, bids of this creation, trying to get a different studio to work on it. And so full-fledged production has begun with funding by Avex Pictures and ASMIC, or ASMIK ACE. And so the character designer related to shows such as Recca 7 has already released um, a key visual, and I'm honestly curious to see how that goes, considering that it's going to be. Uh, Set in 2045, where internet and AI are commonplace, even in space, and it centers on a group of children stranded in that uh, general area as large-scale accidents occurs on their space station. And by using their social networking and drones they can manipulate through smartphones and low-intelligence AI, they're going to have to overcome whatever challenges uh, get placed in front of them. Considering that they legitimately made a studio just so this project could get greenlit and start uh, moving along the production uh, pipeline, I'm honestly curious to see if they're going to be able to reach that 2022 deadline, and I'm going to be legitimately interested in seeing what they're able to accomplish once that actually comes out. And then I would say the only other major bit of news, while still having pretty major implications for uh, the distribution of anime worldwide, is just that Sony is nearing an acquisition of Crunchyroll. Considering that um, the pre- one of their previous stints, Funimation, is already underneath their umbrella, the website reported that Sony would end up spelling more than 100 billion yen, or in this case, 950 million US, to gain the exclusive rights to negotiate for Crunchyroll. Um, and in this case, AT and T back in August offered Crunchyroll to Sony for one and a half billion uh, U.S. And the information stated that Sony reportedly balked at the price, which effectively values the streaming service at five hundred dollars per subscriber. Considering that um, I believe that they have seventy Crunchyroll has seventy million registered users and three million uh, subscribed users going through premium or regular subscriptions. So AT&T had set an asking price of at least one billion for its sale of Crunchyroll, and a Variety states that AT&T was shopping the company to multiple potential buyers aside from Sony. Um, so that's honestly huge, considering that they're already in the talks and that they will probably spend near a billion for acquisitions. I mean. We had something similar uh, happen back in 2016, considering that Crunchyroll and Funimation actually had a partnership for distribution, localization, um, streaming, and dubbing uh, various shows of anime, considering that regardless if one of them licensed them, then both companies and both streaming services would have been able to go back and forth and have, uh, have their specific shows being aired on both of them without having any sorts of problems with exclusivity. And in the era where that was the same time that Amazon Strike was going through and hiding specific shows during the seasons behind a double paywall, and Netflix Jail grabbing a lot of high-quality titles in between 2016 and 2018, but then holding them behind their own service until they would actually have more than enough global distribution and dubs for them to release it it would hide behind netflix jail for more than six months before it actually appeared on the platform so in that time in between 2016 and 2018 it was honestly fantastic considering that if you had one subscription you would essentially have both um streaming streaming platforms and libraries at your disposal which was a very interesting but satisfying time to be a consumer. But now that these talks are going through and Sony could possibly bring both Crunchyroll and Funimation under their umbrella, they would essentially have a monopoly on st- on streaming content going through compared to what Sentai Filmworks has with their streaming service in High Dive, compared to Netflix, compared to Amazon. The amount of shows that would be underneath the umbrella of uh, Sony for all the seasonals that would be coming out every new set and every new season uh, at three-month intervals, they would contain the majority of the content there, whether it was bu- whether it would be subbed underneath the majority of the stuff that Crunchyroll decides to distribute, and then in terms of the dubbing as well, with Funimation housing a lot of their um, talent being able to um, localize and produce several different dubs at a time. So I'm honestly curious to see how this is going to play out over the next couple of weeks and kind of seeing if Crunchyroll does decide to take the offer. I believe Warner is the one that houses uh, their rights exclusively right now, but to see if Sony would actually be able to bring them under is going to be really interesting to kind of see how that plays out. Um, So at least in terms of what I was thinking about talking about this week was the different generational viewing habits and how the anime medium was perceived and distributed and localized between the 90s, between the 2000s, and the 2010s, considering that... There isn't so much a generational as in familial, as in um, parents getting their own kids uh, and their kids getting their own kids to anime. Like over the past forty years, I would definitely decide to put it generational in terms of the viewing habits and how anime was consumed and what different methods were actually able would enable you to bring that uh, to fruition, to actually allow you to go and view this different medium. And so the differences between the transitions of the 90s to the 2000s to the 2010s is just so different and vast in comparison, it was honestly interesting to kind of go and see what I could bring out of this topic. So at least back in the 80s, anime was more tuned towards America. Um, at least in the 80s of America had Nickelodeon running programs and, uh, broadcasting different shows, streamlining pictures, were handling dubs for both television and film, and Harmony Gold did a lot of work as well in terms of dubbing localization and distribution. The majority of this was happening inside of the States, and that was more sort of the demographic that they were trying to uh, facilitate and try and grab that market and try and figure out how they would be able to make that work inside an international North American presence, considering that back in the 80s and 90s, none of it was catered towards an international audience anime was being made for the majority uh it was made for selling toys, it was made for dis- uh, distributing merchandise and different products, and it was all for a localized audience. This was not supposed to be um, an international phenomenon, and it wasn't supposed to be widely accepted internationally and distributed, considering that they would mostly just focus on the demographic that they had inside their own country, and they didn't really have to worry, or they didn't really have to focus on, fo- on any other audience except their own. Um, but once we get to the 90s and the boom of Home media, there was a much higher demand for VHS, physical media, and merchandise that made its way over to North America, and specifically in Canada. Now, there wasn't really uh, that much in terms of uh, conflict or distribution hangups between Canada and the States, even though the States definitely had priority in terms of their population, and Canada was more of an afterthought and trying to figure out how they would localize and distribute and kind of connect the two bars between Canada and the States. If there were two major shows that would kind of, uh, let's see, that would kind of show that kind of uh, difference, it would definitely, so I would probably say Sailor Moon would be the first one to jump to mind. So I definitely was one of the ones that missed all the hype, considering that I was born in the same year that uh, Sailor Moon first aired in North America. And so... A lot of a lot of the information, and essentially, perspective that I get has come from various fans currently in their 30s and 40s that were in the middle of that era who watched Sailor Moon as it was broadcasted and as it was going through. And that's honestly one of the best points that I have going back, not only through YouTube and video analysis and kind of watching the history of how anime was able to unfold in the West, but also through different podcasts like, say, um, Anime World Orders and in Canada, uh, the R-Anime podcast as recently, but considering that that podcast in particular, the R-Anime, is more of my demographic and they're closer to my age, but listening to various people who grew up in that time, who watched this syndicated television where anime was first making its splashes inside of the West, it's legitimately interesting but also important to kind of bring those kinds of perspectives um, inside and compare it to your own. And it's incredibly important to kind of, like, see in comparison, especially nowadays in in what I'm going to focus on later, especially when it comes to distribution and streaming versus distribution over broadcasts and VHS and physical media. So in terms of Sailor Moon back in 95, it was licensed by Dick Productions, and they let Optimum Productions uh, handle the dubbing process, and they were based out of Mississauga in Ontario. So for Sailor Moon, it premiered in August of 95, and for Canada and uh, for Canada and then later uh in that same year it rele- it first released in September in the states but it was canceled after two seasons in November of that same year due to low ratings now that cancellation in particular even though it had a even though the ratings were relatively low it still had a very not a small but a vocal and very passionate group of fans that were still able to watch this and fall in love with it, regardless of how long it was still able to run. It was able to garner that much passion and that much uh, momentum over the two to three months that it was only airing. And the cancellation set in motion one of the first examples of a successful fan activism, as more than 12,000 people signed a fan petition to help get the series back on air. And as much as they tried to... Uh, not necessarily ignore it, but there wasn't necessarily much that they can do, even though considering that Canada was able to put Sailor Moon on prime time, uh, time slots, especially in between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock whenever, when when the majority of the kids were coming back from school. And so that was uh, the majority of the reason why I was able to find more success inside of Canada than the States, as the States decided to put in, in much more dead time slots uh, early in the mornings before they were even up at that point. So the fact that they were still able to get so many fans inside of the States as well was amazing, considering that their first runs of the show happened around six or eight o- or 7 to 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, so after- so through that, the series was able to get back on air. Reruns, uh, started showing on the USA Network back in June of 97, and over the course of that year, the production of the series dub was renewed and finally aired in September the same year for both Canada and the States. They were able to finish up Sailor Moon R and re- and dub the final 17 episodes and actually leave a satisfying conclusion to bring people back into this. Um... And Sailor Moon was definitely one of the first shows that I was able to watch inside of the 2000s, or one of the first anime, even though I still had no idea what anime was at the time, so it was very interesting to kind of see and look back at history on how large and influential this show was, especially in the sense of the West, garnering such a passionate fandom that would legitimately not shut up and try and get this series back on air and syndicated so they would legitimately be able to finish the their own, the story that they fell in love with in the beginning. And... It was definitely more, and leading into what I'll probably talk about later as well, considering that Crave TV has recently been able to um, acquiesce the licensing rights for streaming uh, for the original Sailor Moon and Sailor Moon R. And it's legitimately amazing to see that they were able to bring back all of the classic bids, but on top of that being unedited considering that due to licensing and syndication issues there was a lot of um content that had to be edited and chunked away especially on the fact that they decided to redo a lot of the scripts and regender a handful of the characters as well as having two of the sailor scouts who were yeah who were essentially um gay partners and lesbians inside of the show they decided to rewrite them into being related and cousins and that's an entirely new can of words that i don't really want to open up at this point in time but a a lot of the stuff a lot of the issues especially like going back into the 90s it was definitely um difficult to try and push the envelope with what you can do on television and so a lot of it was um censored and localized and edited and cut down just so they could focus on one specific demographic and not have to worry about any sort of quote-unquote conflict because I, i could understand that this was the 90s um but it was definitely interesting to see how that kind of played out and how Sailor Moon has stayed in the public consciousness for like over two decades at this point. And I would say the next and the next and equally is uh, revolution not revolutionary but popular series to come out in ninety six would have been Dragon Ball Z. And so Funimation worked with uh, Saban and Pioneer Entertainment to release a syndicated dub for North America. and in this case, the dub was handled by Ocean Studios that is based uh, in Vancouver, BC. And so it was interesting to kind of see how they were able to go back and forth and try and um, bring this series over to the West, even after the earlier localization of Dragon Ball failed and was canceled after less than two seasons as well, going the way of Sailor Moon, considering that it wasn't able to get good enough ratings, but they still decided to take a chance on Z. Unfortunately, Z kind of had the same sort of scenario as it debuted in 96 in North America, but it was canceled in 98 after two seasons of surprisingly good ratings and it, it didn't have as much of a public outcry or petition signing to try and bring as many people back into the series um, but it still returned um, later in the year considering that reruns in the states of 98 um, decided to or not decided came back on a cartoon network in the Toonami block and a renewed dub was broadcast in September of 99 running all the way to 2003 so this was uh noted the second dub that Dragon Ball Z was actually able to acquire, and I don't think, I I guess I'll just, uh, pass this on quickly, considering that as much as I would like to talk about it, um, I really wish I had more info and more of a perspective, and in this case, more of a personal relationship towards the Toonami block, because what that was able to accomplish in the 90s and the 2000s to bring so many more anime fans into the fold, um, on their on their specific block and actually being able to air <laughs> various various shows, but were able to get so many uh, so many more people invested. And that was kind of the one of the bids that I was also able to miss, considering that being up in Canada, there weren't as many things that I was able to jump into, or not as many opportunities as well, but Toonami was able to give that opportunity to so many other fans of that entire generation. And as much as I would like to talk about it more, there's not really much I can add to the conversation because I wasn't it was one of the bids that not only I missed, but I wasn't able to take part of. Um so the last bid, I guess, in terms of um in terms of Dragon Ball Z, is that it received another redub under Funimation in 2005 and continued onwards uh, throughout the rest of the year, but that also leads into a pretty good uh, transition point leading into the 2000s, or at least beginning the transition from the late 90s into the early 2000s. And this is the part where I can actually start throwing in some of my own personal perspective, considering that... um, My parents were able to get me VHS tapes of Pokemon and Digimon, and through the syndications on both Teletoon and YTV, I was able to get shows like Inuyasha, like Sailor Moon, Cardcaptor Sakura, Mobile Suit Gundam, all all of the big three, including Naruto, Bleach, and One Piece. Dragon Ball Z was also able to get through on the majority of it, and then leading into different the one cartoon block that was shared between uh Canada and the States at least was the Saturday morning lineup of the kids WB network and every Saturday morning without fail you would find me just sitting in front of that television for 4 hours nearly just trying to uh consume and enjoy as much as th- as much of this new animation that I was able to find because it was just a little different it was different than Batman it was different than Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles it was just um it was its own bid And at the time, you know, because me being a stupid kid and all the localizations of Pokemon and Digimon and all of these other shows I just thought were American-made and they were able to go through and just, um, like, capitalize on the amount of uh, merchandise that they were able to bring through into the market. And I could definitely attest to that considering I forced my parents to waste hundreds upon hundreds of dollars for plastic toys and paper cards and video games as well, like going through Pokemon and Mega Man and everything else on the Game Boy Advance. It was insane how much I was, how much uh, merchandise they were able to go through. At some point in time, I'll pay my parents back for that, but oh my goodness, the amount of crap I forced them to buy for me was absolutely insane. And I mean, leading into the kids' WB block, you would still have stuff like Ultimate Muscle, Kirby, Metabots, Yu-Gi-Oh!, Cardcaptor Sakura, Pokemon, Shaman King, Bakugan Battle Brawlers, Beatemon, Beyblade. Dude, Beyblade, how many fucking tops I forced my parents to buy it, to buy me. And at least I was able to see it was kind of interesting considering that you would have uh, several kids in my elementary school literally just bring their Beyblades and we would hang out under this concrete underpass and the concrete was smooth. So so even if you didn't have, even if you, didn't have a plastic arena that you could just that the majority of the time that you would throw these Beyblades into and spin them in just to try and figure out a way to battle your (laughs) battle your friends same thing with Yu-Gi-Oh cards same thing with Pokemon cards and trading Pokemon and it was just such a commodity and such a generational hallmark of that part of my childhood it was Ridiculous. How many. I mean, the amount of people that had Game Boys just so they could play Pokemon, the amount of different people that had decks upon decks of Pokemon trading cards, of Digimon, uh, not Digimon, uh, Yu Gi Oh trading cards, it was absolutely insane the cultural impact that they were able to bring to the table into the late 90s and the early 2000s. Man, I could just go on for hours, but at this point in time, I would definitely say this is where my gap in the quote-unquote anime fandom began, because even though I would say that I watched all of these shows, I could have technically become an anime fan early on in that time, but it just never really clicked that this was entirely different. This was made uh, somewhere entirely uh, beyond my understanding, this was not made in North America. This was made somewhere else and localized. And I just didn't really take the time, even though I had a computer and the internet was at my hands, I didn't really decide to look and delve deeply into the subject. And it was definitely interesting just kind of seeing the different generational bids in the transition between the 90s and the 2000s, where in the 90s, the majority of it was happening on physical media like VHS and DVDs, as well as merchandise relating to all the previous toys and shows that I uh, mentioned previously, um, this gap where the internet basically changed everything with distribution in anime, this is where things start to go ar- awry, but also catapulting anime and its distribution into ways that nobody had ever seen before. But this is still where my gap was. Probably between 2006 and 2011... Um, in the advent of torrenting through the majority of the time of distributing and acquiring content and reading charts to know what was coming out when and what anime was actually going to be released and uh, distributed, um, it was something that I missed. I would probably say there would be a real, I would say another good topic to lead into it was essentially flash animation, and that was what occupied my time in the majority of the internet in that gap. But... Um, I missed the major turns of the internet with the torrenting of music and media in general, as well as the fan subbing era that came along with it and was essentially able to distribute dozens upon dozens of anime series and old classics that were lost to time through the VHS and uh, physical media era of the 80s and the 90s, especially when it came to films in OVAs and ONAs. All of these uh, different forms of media that were not being able that were never being able to acquire previously was now at your fingertips and all you needed was a stable internet connection and a decent enough hard drive to store all of your data. <sighs> so now not knowing when and where these shows would be able to be picked up and distributed, now in the 2000s, you could essentially use the internet and figure out which shows would be coming out when, when they would be able to uh, grab what is it? japanese dvds and and blu-rays and rips and being able to not only uh fan sub over your own content and being able to localize it all in your own country in your own language um with more ease than most and like this was the easiest it had ever been the night so if the 90s were the generation of physical media and distribution which transitioned into broadcasting and torrents in the 2000s Through the advent of the internet, the generation that I jumped into and what defined me as an anime fan when I began getting into it would have been uh, the generation of the 2010s as an anime equivalent of the generation of streaming. So by 2011, there were just so many sites available that had back catalogs that were larger than any library of content I had ever seen at the time. It was an entire, God, it was just an acquisition and a bank a vault of content that was just all there at my fingertips and it was a proxy to the vast amount of anime uploaded to the internet after years of fan subbing and housing stolen content and being hosted and aired online and it was all there for me i was 16 this was a and i had a vast amount of time on my hands and an equal amount of anime to consume to boot i had more than enough that i could manage The majority of that uh, came through. I'm pretty sure I'm uh, uh, over or reading over previous uh, uh, episodes and content that I had over previous episodes. But at least if I was going to be talking about anything else, I was being able to uh, stream and torrent everything through 2011 till the end of 2013, when I ended up finally picking up a Crunchyroll account. And through Crunchyroll, the majority of of the content that I now consumed was of legal tender. In terms of Crunchyroll, it came in 2013 for me, although it was also, in its infancy, another illegal site for housing and distributing anime from 2006 to 2008, Um, but it removed all of its illegal content and all of its backlogs when it acquired the streaming rights of Naruto Shippuden in 2009, and in this case, went legit. I didn't get an account um, until that time, but before, all the anime I had consumed was through illegal streams and torrents. In comparison to previous generations at that time, the advent and generation of streaming through Crunchyroll, through Netflix, Funimation, Amazon, uh, High Dive, Sentai... This has made every new release effortless into getting an international distribution and audience. We now get shows less than 24 hours after they have aired in Japan. Even in some cases, uh, like in the advent of Space Dandy, the English dub was broadcasted before the Japanese release. Um, So in comparison to having to wait... A handful of months for a show to get picked up and fan-subbed by a group that you were hoping that they would actually be able to uh, distribute it well enough and get it inside of your country. Or the 90s where you would legitimately, you wouldn't even know how many shows would be coming out in a specific year, when they would be able to d- get distributed, when they would actually be able to at least garter a global audience because you have no idea if they would even localize in your own country. And the U.S. definitely had a little bit more of a precedent because, of course, they had a much larger demographic, a much larger population that you would actually be able to go through and uh, be able to sell towards. But Canada was more of an afterthought, and the majority of the time that we were brought into the limelight would have been through the localization of dubs that were being brought on through our bid. I mean, nowadays, they're not necessarily through ocean... Uh, not uh, what is it? Ocean Studios, but there's still there's still more than enough voice acting talent that is popping up out of Toronto, outside of uh, Vancouver, outside of Mississauga. So there's more than enough sitting inside of Canada to at least uh, scratch that itch, or at least bring them up to the fact that hey, we still you know we're still a demographic that you don't necessarily need to cater towards, but we still exist, and we are more than enough, and we are just as and we are just as passionate of fans as anybody else. So it's definitely kind of been interesting to, kind of to see how Canada has been evolving through the majority of our fandom and over the past couple of decades. Um, I would definitely like to like thank the cons that were have been made over the past decade or so, which would definitely go through Anime North inside of Toronto, and then Anime Evolution being resolved to Anime Revolution later. So the fact that cons are still being uh, championed, even though in these troubling times, we're not going to be able to probably see conventions for at least another uh, year or two, which is definitely tragic, but it's it's necessary that at least we will be able to find our own way ...and be able to find different uh, series and distributions and streaming opportunities to kind of let that through. Because you've still got old series coming out of the woodwork that are now finding new lives in streaming, like Sailor Moon and as recently on Netflix, uh, Evangelion, who, who was stuck in licensing hell ever since 96 and being able to finally, like, garner a legal international audience, even though it has still been able to make the rounds and become a cult classic and one of the most influential anime of all time, now being able to garner new fans and new new, uh, notoriety thanks to its new life on stream and its new life on Netflix. So old anime getting new streaming life inside of Canada is definitely going to be one of the things that I would like to see Focused on and kind of like to see how they will move on and if it is still able to stay, or and if we are able to stay as relevant as we are in comparison to uh, the American fan base. Um, so in comparison, looking into what the future holds and what 2020 is probably going to be, I honestly have no idea. Streaming is still going to be running, whether specific companies are going to be able to make large acquisitions just like Sony is going to try and make with Crunchyroll and have monopolies over seasonal shows is going to be interesting to kind of see how they translate and what that means as a consumer whenever the majority of content is being taken over by one entity or one commodity but I don't think Sony is going to be having as much as much to say as it does censorship maybe but in terms of distribution and what shows they pick up and what shows they don't Um, I'm pretty sure that they'll be able to at least leave the majority of the licensing decisions up to the companies that they have been able to buy and acquiesce underneath that bid. So I'm very curious to see how they're able able to translate that kind of success and those kinds of acquisitions if it does start happening in 2020. Um, For the rest of the decade, I mean, even though we now have streaming as the go-to, as the main medium of consumption for this generation... I'm going to be curious to see how they bring other titles, other old classics that have been lost to time into the limelight as they have been doing previously with a lot of the shows that they brought up over the past year. As well, as I mentioned before, Netflix making specific partnerships to various other companies, I think the biggest change in terms of the, of a generational impact that 2020 is going to have, is going to be more of a merging between the East and the West, between Japan and every... <laughs> it's, it's tough considering where it's not like East and West, it's more like Japan and everywhere else. Considering that there have been studios like Studio Trigger that have been able to garner a worldwide audience, considering that even though it's not their priority, they definitely do take into account uh, what... what international fans are thinking and what they're actually looking for in terms of the shows that they create because trigger in of itself has more of an identity than most and it has a patreon that is um given funds through various fans that are trying to give back to the medium other than buying merch other than buying dvds other than buying a subscription just so netflix and crunchyroll can just sit on the production committees and not necessarily change much else about the industry that they do so Those major companies being able to sit on the production table and whether or not these major companies are going to be able to make large changes to the industry, that is going to be the only question that I have in terms of what 2020 is going to do. And even though the 2010s garnered streaming and now that more and more and more fans have been able to... Peer through the window and step into what the fandom actually is because now that there are more opportunities and there's ease of access through streaming and not having to essentially uh hunt down and search for physical media and pay top dollar and hundreds upon hundreds of bids depending on the size of uh the series back catalog and how many episodes they have the fact that you can go through and watch all of it through one basic monthly subscription is absolutely nuts And what 2020 is probably going to bring to the table, even though I continuously repeat that, is definitely going to be a globalization of anime. Now that Amazon, now that Netflix, now that Sony has essentially stepped into the ring with more with more than enough money and clout to essentially walk and toe the line and show Japan and the majority of the studios and the production companies that, hey, this is the demographic that you can now cater towards. This is now a different avenue that you can go forward and create different uh, shows on, because if it doesn't have to cater to just the, an- just the anime fandom and weebs inside of Japan and that only localized audience in particular... As long as they're able to find different avenues to create content and show people that you don't have to just cater to one specific fandom. Now that almost everybody has an idea of what anime is, and now that it is being uh, globalized in a sense that more and more streaming services are bringing it into the limelight, more and more streaming services are actually uh, bringing it forward and showing the numbers and the specific catering size and demographic and audience that they know that they have it is going to be very interesting to kind of see how they move forward and and how that kind of global audience changes alters and shapes the way that anime is going to be created moving forward